0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Here to Apologetics, as always brought to you by you through support Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by Matt Nelson. He's an assistant director at the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, we're talking about divine hiddenness. Matt, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for inviting me on, Zach. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you yeah and i'm excited
0: um to talk about divine hiddenness an important uh question here we're just gonna kind of walk through the problem and just talk about it and we'll do a little bit of q a at the end if you're listening live and you have questions uh but to start off matt could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do
1: yeah um so i'm originally from saskatchewan canada it's a little small town called Shonovan. Um one of one of our bragging rights is that uh, the, arguably the greatest female hockey player in the world is from our little small town there okay. in Saskatchewan. So um, that's where I'm from. I moved my family to Texas about uh, two years ago. I'm married with three children. And uh, we moved out to uh, work with the Word on Fire Institute. And so I, I work here as an apologist, as a fellow of the Institute, and um, uh, you know help to propagate Uh, the gospel through Bishop Robert Barron's ministry that he founded um, over a decade ago. So um, yeah, that's what I got going on.
0: Yeah, that's great, thank you. So today we're gonna be talking about like the problem of divine hiddenness and what's going on here and responses and questions and kind of looking at all of it, you've written on the topic um, a little bit at least. So what got you interested in like divine hiddenness and the questions surrounding um, this challenge?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's an important objection uh, I think that it is compelling, at the very least on the surface of it. I think every Christian, every theist, has wrestled to some extent with what we would call the problem of the hiddenness of God. Mm-hmm. Now sometimes we feel as though God ought to be more apparently real and present in our lives and that his action in our lives or in the world ought to be uh, more readily sensible or, or uh, perceived. And so, um, you know, I, I think that to be honest with you, even today as a believer, I sometimes feel compelled by this worry, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And of course, uh, a part of, part of being a man or woman of faith is to um, look at all the facts and to see the big picture. And just because we have difficulties, um, Through our belief. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to justify us not believing at all. Uh, So, I think on a personal level, I understand uh, on the emotional level at the very least how compelling this this problem is. Uh, but But I also think that it's one of the best objections against the existence of God, especially when it's formulated not as an emotional argument, but as a logical or evidential argument. Um, Obviously, J.L. Schellenberg is kind of the poster boy for uh, atheist philosophers of religion who have put out rigorous uh, defenses of the problem of hiddenness as an argument from hiddenness against the existence of God. So I think that um, for us as Christians uh, and for any believers in God, we need to reckon with not just the best arguments that are going to defend what we believe. But I think we also need to reckon with the arguments that oppose what we believe because at the end of the day, we're called to follow the truth where it leads us. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just think it's an important objection that needs to be taken seriously.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, um, and especially on like the emotional level, like when you just, t- when I'm talking with like maybe a skeptic or someone and you hear like, well, God's just playing hide and seek, like it's almost like this emotional, like gut punch where it's like, well, I can't just like pull out this little thing from the sky and show you that you're wrong, um, mm-hmm. like right away. So it's definitely an interesting challenge. So to frame the problem of divine hiddenness, like what is it um, that, that skeptics will bring up when we're talking about um, the problem of divine hiddenness?
1: Yeah. So... Uh, The first thing I want to do is make a distinction, which I've already made, and I'll just reiterate it. We can make a distinction between the problem of divine hiddenness and the argument from divine hiddenness, okay? Mm -hmm. The problem is something that believers and non-believers will face, um, but it doesn't really amount so much to an argument that's gonna lead us to a solid, logical conclusion so much as it might tempt us to um, maybe then reason towards a conclusion, Uh, but the argument from divine hiddenness is really more of a category because there's lots of different kinds of ways that arguments from divine hiddenness have been formulated. The most most famous, I think, of arguments from divine hiddenness would be, as I've already mentioned, that which has been proposed and developed over time by J.L. Schellenberg. Um, And I mean, roughly speaking, his argument goes something like this. If God exists, then he is open to a relationship with any finite capable creature who desires a relationship with him. Um, And the word he uses to describe the particular kind of non-believer that he thinks should be given good reason to believe in God's existence, if God exists, is what he calls a non-resistant non-believer. And so I think sometimes it helps just to formulate what for him is a book-length argument where he you know, makes all kinds of distinctions, he meets objections along the way. I think the best way to really reckon with his argument is to get his book and read it and then read the literature that he's published since. Um, but I think like to get to the root of this logical problem of evil, that, that, or sorry, of hiddenness, which sometimes is considered uh, a type of uh, argument from evil, Maybe an easy way to formulate it is like this. God's existence and the existence of non-resistant non-believers are incompatible. But non-resistant non-believers exist. Therefore, God does not exist. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's an, it's an incompatibility argument in a way where they're mutually exclusive of each other. One can, they both can't exist alongside each other. And so um, this seems to be at the root of what Schellenberg is trying to argue is that if God is perfectly loving, then he has to be open to a relationship with non-resistant non-believers when they want that relationship with him. Um, And it's inconsistent with his perfect love for God to deny that relationship in that moment when that relationship is desired. And so there's lots of questions we can ask about that argument and we can look at some of the assumptions that even Schellenberg is, seems to be making. Um, but I think in a nutshell, that's kind of the, the most formidable of divine hid- hiddenness arguments that's been formulated. Um, say, I'll just say a couple more things here, Zach, if you don't mind, because I do wanna stress that this isn't the only kind of argument against the existence of God from divine hiddenness. Uh, there's some other interesting ones out there. Uh, Stephen Mateson has offered an argument from the sort of geographical patchiness of belief. And you know, without misrepresenting or oversimplifying his argument, his argument goes something like, "Well, if God existed, then we would expect to see a more balanced, symmetrical, widespread belief in the theistic God across the globe." But you know, we have countries like maybe countries in Asia where the large majority of people are Buddhists and they don't—they're not theists. Um, and but if we are made for belief and relationship with God, then we should expect that this sort of patchiness would not exist, that we'd have more of a natural disposition towards belief in a theistic God, but that's not what we find. And so we would, you know, maybe say that the way that the world is, as far as this geographical patchiness goes, is better explained on naturalism than on theism. Uh, So that's Stephen Maitzen's argument in a nutshell. Um, Another one is an argument proposed by Jason Marsh which is an argument from natural non-belief. And his argument is that, you know, if we look back to the most primitive uh, eras of human existence, we find that atheism was more predominant that, or at least that theism was not dominant. Um, but if we were made by God who makes us for a relationship with him, then we would have expected um, in those earliest Times of human existence to find widespread theism, or to see theism as a sort of default stance uh, of belief amongst humans, but we don't find that. Um, And he adds to his argument by saying, evolution, which seems to be, uh, on his account, a fact uh, about the world, seems to cause more problems when it comes to belief of Christians and of theists than it does unite us with the facts of the world and and so because it, it seems to be almost more of a atheistic or agnostic type uh phenomenon about the world that sort of drives people more towards non-belief than belief then if god wanted this relationship with us that that we claim he does then he wouldn't have made the world that way um, so the world in his view it seems to uh, be more made for non-belief than belief uh, anyways in a nutshell uh, the, those are some of the other uh, more interesting arguments out there right now as well
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's the interesting thing about philosophy is there's just so many different arguments um, yeah. it's hard to like refer to like the divine hiddenness argument or the argument from evil or the, the cosmological argument all these things um, but what one of the things I really enjoyed, like reading, like some of your work on, um, divine hiddenness is first just talking about, like, should we really expect more evidence for God's existence? Just like questioning, um, some of the assumptions that are usually brought up in these, uh, arguments from divine hiddenness. Could you talk about like that question of, should we expect more evidence for God's existence than like what we, um, experience as humans now?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that we should expect more evidence. Um, (laughs) But when I I really step back and look at all the facts, I don't think we should. Um, I think the first thing I would want to say, and this is coming from what Michael Ray argues in his book, The Hiddenness of God. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Michael Ray says, like, ultimately, the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness, they, they are ultimately... Arguments from failed expectations. And you're talking about, should we expect more evidence from God? <clears throat> At the risk of sounding like we're trying to flippantly just like not make an argument or a response to these arguments against the existence of God. Um, Ray wants us to be cautious about putting expectations on God because there's certain aspects of his nature, that make it difficult for us in, from our vantage point to really put expectations on God to some extent. Um, and so when we're making arguments that conclude God does not exist from certain expectations that we've placed on God, we gotta be very careful. we can say more about this in a moment. Here's the thing, I think God has given us ample evidence to believe in his existence i mean obviously i'm a christian and so i'm not a christian just because i want to be um in many respects i think it would be easier some days if i wasn't a christian and i've and i've fallen away from the faith as you know many people today have who have experienced college or university and uh, you go away, and you've got all these freedoms you didn't have before, and you have a chance, I suppose, in a way, we could say, to think for yourself. You're no longer, you know, in your parents' domain where you have to go to church on Sunday. And um, so you get to play around with different ideas and, and start to think about reality from a more autonomous perspective. And um, for my early 20s, up until I was 25, you know, I fell away from my faith. I was brought up Catholic fell away from my faith and became skeptical, but not intellectually rigorously skeptical, but more just kind of indifferent, but where I would still be re- you know, ready to challenge anybody who wanted to make any hard and fast, uh, defenses of God's existence or especially like what kind of God existed. Um, and so over time, you know, obviously I've come to believe in God again and I've done that, because of evidences. Um, Now, some evidences are demonstrations. Um, Some evidences are more intuitive. And this is something Alvin Plantinga has written a lot about. Tyler McNabb, a younger philosopher of religion, has written about this from a more Catholic perspective. Um, not that reformed epistemology proposed by Alvin Plantinga is just for uh, Protestants say. That's mm-hmm. something that he never wanted people to assume. So uh, he regretted calling it reformed epistemology because it sounds like it's referring to like some kind of denominational type yeah. you know, epistemology. But that's not what he meant by it. Um, but, you know, so on the level of experience and on the level of demonstrations, I think that it's far more plausible than not that God exists. In fact, I, I hesitate to use the word plausible because I, I'm convinced, I'm convicted that God exists and that Christianity is true. But it's not because of just one argument and it's not just because of one experience and this is what we need to say when we're talking about divine hiddenness. If the seeking skeptic let's say if the non-resistant non-believer is looking for that one argument like why can't god just give me that one argument that's Mm going to you know sway me the other direction or why can't god just give me that one experience that's Mm going to do it for me it's not often how belief and relationship with god happens often belief and relationship with god is a process you know and sometimes You know, when we think about, like, for example, someone might say, well, why doesn't God, you know, show us a sign in the sky, say a a neon cross or something that, or, you know, I think William Lane Craig likes to say, why not like a neon cross in the sky that says Jesus saves underneath it, where it's undeniable that it's of God and everyone would be forced to believe. Well, there's a couple of things to say about that, but what I want to say right now is that, um, that's not necessarily going to guarantee that anyone who sees that is going to move from, first of all, it's not going to guarantee belief, I don't think, and more to the point, for those who then say, oh, okay, yeah, God exists, um, that's not necessarily going to mean that they're going to be in relationship with God. And so I think this is, you know, another important point to make. So it's a point that Peter Van Inwegen and others make is that God is not just interested in that we believe in Him he's also interested in why we believe in him. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we talk about why we believe in God from a theistic perspective, we have to be careful not to say, oh, it's just because of this one argument and this one argument or even this list of arguments is enough evidence for you to have a relationship with God. How can you not see this? It's not that easy. When I think about why I believe in god and why I d- desire and exp- a- and strive every day to be in relationship with him i can't put my finger on that one reason why because it's a you know this is a this is a john henry newman thing of um there's this informal inference that we that we undergo he talked he writes about in his grammar of ascent that it's hunches its experiences its arguments It's, um, you know, all of these different angles from which we arrive at a conviction. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we're looking for like more evidence or wanting to expect more evidence, I think we need to talk a little bit about like, well, what kind of evidence are we expecting? Mm -hmm. And um, for everybody, it seems to be a little different because some people do come to belief with one, you know, maybe one experience interiorly Um, and for others, it's a long process of seeking. Mm-hmm. So. Um,
0: yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I, I'm glad you brought up Michael Ray's work on The Problem of Divine Hiddenness because I read his book um, just this past year, and it's really good. Um, and I appreciate the move he kind of makes in the beginning where you're just talking about um, – well, how can we really know that we'd expect more evidence um, for God's existence if we're going to run like a divine hiddenness argument? It's it's a really good book. Um, so one of the, the next things that you were kind of leading into here is: could we just could God have good reasons for His hiddenness? I think a lot of times, like when we make these divine hiddenness arguments, are like well, skeptics well, they'd assume that there'd be no reason for God to appear to be hidden if He really does love us and want to have a relationship with us and such. Um, so what do you think about this idea? Could God have good reasons for His um, apparent hiddenness?
1: I think I think he could, and actually, before I jump into that, Zach, could I just make one more comment that's related? Yeah. It's related to what we were just talking about, and it'll lead into this question you're asking me. Mm-hmm. I think that a you know a sort of burden placed on the theist whenever we're we're defending um, the existence of God and the truth of our theistic beliefs in light of this objection from divine hiddenness is we need to be very clear about what we mean when we say. when we say we believe in God. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by God? Because here's the thing. It seems to me that Schellenberg's argument, for example, rests on a very particular understanding of how he conceives God's nature Mm -hmm. and how he conceives what it means to be perfectly loving. Um, And so we need to be very clear from the outset what we mean when we're talking about belief in God. Because if Schellenberg is, saying that you know this kind of God is not compatible with this kind of experience, well if this kind of God that he's presuming we believe in is not the God we believe in, then his argument is kind of missing the point. Um, so what I would want to say if if you know if somebody is asking me about this this phenomenon of divine hiddenness or apparent hiddenness is the God I believe in can be described in multiple ways that can get can get us uh, get us at what it is that i believe but because of god's transcendence and this is kind of you know getting back to what michael ray has argued from given his ultimate transcendence um, at best we can only ever speak an analogy about god's nature that being said, we can say this. I can say this, along with Saint Anselm, I can say that God is that then which nothing greater can be conceived, or the greatest conceivable being, as it's sometimes put. I can say with Saint Thomas Aquinas, and Aristotle for that matter, that God is pure actuality or pure act, or put, to put it another way, the pure act of to be itself, or to put it another way, pure existence. Um, and I can also say with now, I like, this is a good distinction to make to help us get at God's nature. And this, is, this comes from Monsignor Robert Sokolowski, he teaches at the Catholic University of America, very well-respected philosopher of phenomenology, and not just, in, uh, not just among Christian philosophers, but uh, among secular philosophers as well. And he says, to properly understand God's transcendence and his perfection, we need to understand God in this way that God plus the world is not greater than God alone. So what that means is that God did not need to create the world, that God didn't become more perfect when he created the world, that God is perfect in himself, completely fulfilled in himself. And so any creation that he gratuitously brings into existence, is for the sake of the creature, not for the sake of the creator. So this helps to start to get at what we mean when we say that God is transcendent, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, can we give good reasons for the hiddenness of God? And I'm gonna assume that when we talk about hiddenness of God, I mean, I'm gonna assume that what we mean is like, why isn't God as obviously existing as you are obviously existing to me? or as Pietro, our producer in front of me right now is obviously existing to me. I can, I can sense him. I can see him. I can, um, you know, observe the different actions and effects that he's bringing about right in front of me. Um, and I have no doubt that he exists with God. We don't really seem to have that sensible experience with him. Um, and unless we're willing to kind of dive deep intellectually, uh his existence at least rationally speaking is not going to be immediately apparent Mm -hmm. um so why is it that god would make it you know seemingly so difficult to find him to know he exists and to not just know that he exists as a fact but to know he exists in a way that makes us desire a relationship with him well here i think alvin plantinga is helpful because he makes his distinction between a defense and a theodicy so many of the people listening to this will probably know this, but just for a refresher, so uh, theod- uh, theodicy is essentially a, an, a response to, the, it could be the problem, usually the problem of evil, or we could say also the problem of divine hiddenness, where you say, this is why God is hidden in the way he is. Mm-hmm. And defense is saying, this is possibly why God is hidden the, the way he is. And the idea is, with a defense, you're not making any hard and fast commitments. But what you're trying to show is that God's hiddenness, in this case, is not logically incoherent in terms of who God is and what his nature is. Um, And so, yeah, there's been some interesting defenses put forward about why it is that God may permit himself to be... um, not perceived and in particular, not perceived by non-resistant non-believers so-called. So let's look at a, you know, a few of these possibilities. Well, one is, you know, this is a popular one. Well, if God made himself so readily apparent to those who are seeking him, it may be that that obviousness of his revelation may in some way compromise the free will of those who come to believe in him. They may be so overwhelmed by the new evidence that convinces them that God exists, then some way that might compromise their free will. Well, then there would be a compromise of, of a very important good in the life of the human being, and that seems to be incongruent with who God is. God never wants to overwhelm our free will. Free will is Our free will is the greatest gift God has given us, in a sense, because it's by our free will that love is possible. Um, and so that might be like a second part of that argument, is that by in some way overwhelming our free will to the extent where our free will is compromised, well then proper love of God is not possible. Uh, so that, that's one possible way that you could respond to this. Um, and feel free to interrupt me at any time, Zach, if no. you want to interject or anything.
0: No, it's great, and I, I love what you're doing here because it's a very thorough treatment of um, this argument. So, if I have stuff, I'll feel I'll, free, free, I'll feel free to um, add in. But I think we're good for now. Um, but the next question I had for you, if we can keep on going here, is: um, sure. Could God's hiddenness be related to like this desire to seek Him? Like a lot of times when we talk about like divine hiddenness, I'll see this idea of like, well, if God just made His existence just like extremely obvious, like you know, he, like comes down on Earth and sets up His little home in Jerusalem, or not a little home, obviously, and it, like just makes it obvious and you can't deny that God exists unless you're trying like insane or something. Um, It kind of like remove our freedom. So do you think there's any kind of like legs to this idea that this could be related to the desire to preserve freedom and be able to seek him?
1: Yeah. A couple things that I'd want to say about this. One is that at least on the view of classical theism, which is the view that I hold, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we always want to be careful when we talk about God's desires because yeah. there's a sense in which, if we are talking about desires, we're talking about uh, perfection yet to be achieved, and in God, mm-hmm. all per, like all perfect, God is perfect, infinitely perfect. So there's no perfections left for Him to achieve, um, and so God desires a relationship with us. Again, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, not for His sake, but for our sake. And so, first of all, I just want to be careful with that. Now saying that God has desires is different than saying God wills. All right. So God certainly wills for us to have a relationship with him. But I think also then flipping it around and talking about the, our desires to be in relationship with God. Uh, this is the approach that Blaise Pascal took when he talked about divine hiddenness in in his pensées. Blaise Pascal, uh, this, the great 17th century polymath. He was a mathematician. He was, you know, his family friends with Rene Descartes. Um, he's an inventor, a physicist, um, mathematician, a uh, philosopher, all these things. So he's given us a lot to think about in his, in his works. And he treats divine hiddenness in this 17th century uh, collection of notes that were supposed to become a work of Christian apologetics, but he never got around to writing it because he died before he could. But he says that um, maybe it's the fact that it's, you know, those, God is hidden in such a way where those who truly seek him will find him, and those who are not honestly seeking him or striving to know whether or not he exists will not find him. So, this sort of nuanced view of like, God is hidden, but only to the extent that he'll be hidden from those who aren't sincerely seeking him. Now, this is interesting, and it's an interesting. Um, proposal to kind of put face to face with what Schellenberg has said about non-resistant non-belief. And I suppose it also raises another question that I've been thinking a lot about, which is whether or not non-resistant non-belief exists. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that, you know, there's some arguments we could make from, well, for one thing, if non-resistant non-belief does not exist, then Schellenberg's argument doesn't go through. Um, and maybe this is something you want to talk about, um, at some point, but I don't know if I fully answered your question, it it cut out a little bit when you, when you were asking it. So I'm not sure if I heard all the, all the details.
0: No, no, I think you're good. You bring up some really interesting points. Um, one was like the classical versus like um, if you would not hold a classical theism distinction. Do you think that maybe like how we treat the problem of divine hiddenness may differ? Um, if like someone like yourself is a classical theist versus maybe like a Christian who, maybe like Richard Swinburne, who wouldn't hold the classical theism, do you think that might be an important difference in this problem?
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, th- this is why it's such a critical debate within and among Christians is you know, what is the nature of God or like, what can we know about God's nature? Um, Mm -hmm. And this is where we kind of see this branching off from classical theism often associated with like Thomists and um, definitely Catholic philosophers. Because for us, uh, belief in divine simplicity, the doctrine of divine simplicity, that God um, is uncomposite, that he has no parts physical or metaphysical, that's a that's a matter of faith for us. We it's it's something we have to hold um, since the, the first Vatican Council, which like uh, made that clear for us. Uh, although um, a little bit of uh, Catholic explanation here for you, just because a council says we're defining this doesn't mean that that wasn't believed all along. It's just clarifying something that is part of the tradition. Um, so, you know, I know that you probably I don't know this, but I'm gonna assume that y- you probably aren't a fan of divine simplicity because most. Most non-Catholic Christians aren't, although some are. Um, I guess that's
0: like the new the new like cool rebel thing to do for us Protestants is to, to reject classical theism. So I mean, I guess I'm definitely not attracted to it, but I'm not opposed to it. but okay, yeah, yeah,
1: well, and that's good. And I think you know it, it goes both ways. So I need to also, as um, a classical theist, be willing to have you know, seek the truth with you about the nature of God. But yeah, here's the thing, like if I define God as, pure act in Aristotelian terms, um, then I'm essentially adopting a classical theist position. I mean, th- something that follows from that, and you have to make arguments to get there, is that God is simple, um, metaphysically and physically. And so you get to divine simplicity from that that strict approach from Aristotle to St. Thomas Aquinas and, you know, into modern day where, like, you know, po- um, Philosophers of religion who are starting to popularize, although he's certainly not a popular philosopher in any kind of derogatory sense, but Edward phaser is doing a great job of teaching people about divine simplicity and how you know and, and proposing the philosophical rigor that lies behind it. Um, so yeah, if we're going to treat God as you know being itself, then that's going to have some effect on how we say we can talk about God. If we're going to treat God as sort of, uh, you know, a person as Swinburne would, who's just sort of, uh, you know, again, sort of more like the greatest being around, but still a being as opposed to being itself. Um, then we're going to treat God more as a moral agent. Whereas someone who adopts the classical theistic model is going to say, well, we can't treat God as a moral agent. God's outside of that. He transcends the category of moral agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know uh, we can i'm already down a rabbit hole with this but um there's lots we can say about that
0: yeah it's so much fun because as you're talking like every like five six words I'm like oh there's something we could talk about there's something we could talk about Um, it's just there's so much fun stuff here um, with the doctrine of God and things like that Um, but I do want to talk about here um, we'll transition a little bit to this idea of like non-resistant non-believers you talked about Um, because like J.L. Schellenberg in his argument he kind of assumes that this is true and like intuitively like it kind of makes sense that we'd assume that there's people that are like open to having this relationship with God Um, but do you think that there are people that maybe that there are are non-resistant non-believers because I always wonder like okay so I mean there's obviously like we can't like call everyone a liar because there's definitely people who are like open to this belief in God. But I wonder like, you know, like Christian texts, like Romans one, um, it seems to talk about how like in some, in some sense, every non-believer would be in a way like hardened towards God, not in like reformed theology where they, um, have to be like, basically like regenerated by God alone, but kind of like everyone has this Mm -hmm. natural inclination a little bit towards like sin and like a in opposition to like what God requires of us. So what do you think about this whole idea of like non-resistant non-believers with regards to like the divine hiddenness Mm -hmm. argument? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it's a really important question and I continue to think about it, um, but I have a hard time personally finding out, you know, finding a way to fully endorse this concept of non-resistant non-belief. We know from 2 Timothy chapter one, verse four, that God desires for all men to be saved. Um, And God never does anything in vain. He's always at work. Again, this might, this might um, come across as more of a classical theistic assertion, but I don't think it's restricted only to what a classical theist would say that God not not only created us, but he sustains us Mm -hmm. always in existence. That act of sustaining us is a grace. It's a free gift. We don't, like, in a certain sense, we haven't merited that we exist. We exist because God's given us the gift of existence. So God is always at work in us through grace. And I have a hard time thinking that that there's ever a time when God, in some subtle way, isn't trying to, like, when God isn't knocking, when God Mm -hmm. isn't trying to, to move us in our lives. And this applies even to those countries, let's say we were talking about before, where very few people are inclined to believe in a personal God, let alone Christianity. Um, I think that God is always in every human being's lives, always at work, trying to, maybe more subtle than other times, most times it's probably very subtle, Mm -hmm. moving Mm -hmm. us in intellect and will towards belief in Him and ultimately a relationship with Him. I don't think though that, um, that ultimate non-resistance is, well, I just think I have a hard time believing that there's anybody who in some way is not resistant to God trying to break through and make his reality known to them. Now. This then gets into questions about whether non-resistant non-belief um, could be talked about in an interesting way, both in a conscious and unconscious way. Well, it, it makes sense. Like, so how would first of all, how would we know if non-resistant non-belief is is a a, a real thing? Well, mm-hmm. we can pretty much only go off of testimony. I mean, I can, I don't see how we could ever come up with some kind of a device, say, or some kind of a scientific test that's going to, to you know, reveal non-resistant mm-hmm. non-belief to us. Yeah. But just because somebody says that they're non-resistantly uh, unbelieving doesn't mean that they've, you know, necessarily read their soul properly. I mean, we mm-hmm. all know, and this is both biblical and I think just a fact of psychology, that we're usually not very good at at, uh, self-assessment. Yeah. Um, and so I think like, you know, one thing I'd like to think more about and maybe look into more is this idea of unconscious, uh, unconscious or implicit non-resistant non-belief, where it's actually a sort of might see it as something like a natural evil that maybe from a perspective of neuroscience and the way that our brains operate, that we might have implicit biases within our brain that perhaps, keep us from belief in God. Where like on a conscious level we feel like we're not resisting the existence of God in any way. And yet there is this sort of natural explanation that we're not explicitly aware of that's causing us to to resist this breaking through that God is attempting. But God is patient with us. And God is always looking at us and thinking about a relationship with us from, a, from an eternal perspective. And this is something Eleanor Stump writes very eloquently and also technically about as one of the great living philosophers of our time in her book, Wandering in Darkness, is that um, God is, um, God is always at work on us, in us. And he's, he's always, you know, he's always trying to, despite whatever the, the natural obstacles are in our life he's always trying to work on us and ultimately with the end of eternal life in mind so even if we're you know the thief on the cross who comes to the lord at the very last instance of our life ultimately the infinite good that's achieved by dying in the state of grace by dying in friendship with god is going to cancel out as and this is contentious to say this but that infinite good achieved in eternal life will in some respect cancel out any of the privation of relationship with god or evil suffered in this life and i know making an argument like that will make some people angry and it's not a sort of argument that they want to hear but that's one approach that we could take and i think that there's actually something to that that the value of what's obtained in eternal life if we persist and if you know, and God is always because it, it has to be consistent with the justice of God. That if He's created us for a supernatural end to be with Him for all of eternity in heaven, then He has to give us sufficient graces to achieve that end. Um, and so, and so, whether it's like now as a non-resistant, non-believer, or whether it's somewhere down the line, um, at the end of the day. What God is interested in is eternal life with us, even at the expense of um, maybe a a life lacking almost wholly in relationship with us here. Mm
0: Yeah, no, that's great because I think this is like a response that I've seen um, kind of like to the problem of evil and, in a way, it's kind of like, especially with like um, very like intense evils and sufferings is like, okay, well, yeah, we have this thing that's really sad and hard for someone to go through. But if we compare it with like the possibility of eternal life and like eternal like relationship with God, um, mm-hmm. like just how beautiful that is and how much like of an infinite value that it can just like cancel out any like finite sufferings that we'll face here on earth. Um, so I
1: appreciate that response. And it's related um, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I, I no, just no. you
0: are. I'll good. Just, I was gonna. add on. Take as much time as you need.
1: Yeah. No, I just want to add this. That again, getting back to Blaise Pascal, you kind of see how everything is kind of coming together in in Pascal. If you if you read the Pensees, you'll see that you know there's a real organic whole there. And so that we often talk about Pascal's wager as like this isolated uh, probabilistic idea. I hesitate to call it an argument, but you know this idea. Um, and we don't talk about the rest of what Pascal wrote, but, um, I mean, this is kind of something Pascal is trying to say with the wagers, like what we gain, if Christianity is true, if God exists, is everything, but that's in the next life, not here. Yeah. And so like, you know, th- those are the stakes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few more questions for you, and if anyone listening live has questions or a super chat, uh, feel free to send that in, and we'll have a little bit of time at the end to answer questions with Matt. Um, but one kind of thing that you talked about in your writing, and it's like a very common thing to talk about with regards to like, the odysseys and such, is like the incarnation and how that affects like the problem of divine hiddenness or an argument from mm-hmm. divine hiddenness. Um, so what do you think about the role of the incarnation in like everything we've been talking about here, Matt?
1: Yeah, so... Um- Couple thoughts come to mind. One is the incarnation is essentially God showing Himself to the world in just the way we want Him to, through physical, through physical appearance of sorts, um, about as physical of an appearance as God could could give us. You know, it's better than a sign in the sky. I think when God becomes flesh and then works signs and wonders in His life. Now, the interesting thing that we learn through the incarnation is it gives us a chance a, um, to look back into history and see how people responded to the signs and wonders worked by God, you know, which ultimately um, was consum, you know, like of all the signs and wonders worked by God, you know, the, the consummate sign and wonder was the resurrection. But we see like, you know, just like the Israelites who had a, a cloud of fire by night and a cloud, you know, a, a, a sorry, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day leading them towards the promised land, you know, they still fell away from God. And they had these tremendous uh, signs that God existed during those times. Um, And we see this again in the New Testament when, you know, in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man. And the Pharisees see that this man has had his, his sight restored to him, and they still go after Jesus. And this is just, you know, so this serves as almost like a sort of way of putting some of these proposals about God revealing himself and what the effects of that would be under a microscope and saying, well, if we trust, you know, at least historically what the Bible is telling us, let's forget for a second about the claim that it's divinely inspired, but if we trust it as a historical document, it seems to indicate um that even when Jesus was working his greatest wonders, people still didn't believe. They still, Judas, for example, still fell away. Thomas, until he saw with his own eyes, the wounds of Christ, didn't believe. Peter denied Christ. Um, so, I mean, this is, despite the signs and wonders they were provided, they still, they still had to struggle really to, um, to keep that faith burning inside of them and, and to believe. Um, Now, I don't want to discount the value of signs and wonders. I mean, clearly, still today, miracles are experienced and, um, you know, observed and recorded by believers and non-believers, medical specialists, people who look into these things to find out if they're authentic. And there's a lot of value um, in terms of moving people towards faith in these signs and wonders. but I do think that the our incarnation was God, number one, saying, here, let's see how, like, uh, at least from our perspective, we can see it this way. God is giving us a chance to see that belief in God is not just a matter of signs and wonders. There's something more required for us to really find that relationship with God that we're meant to have. Um, and that and that we can still be resistant, even if God gives us... Um, sufficient evidence, let's say, Mm -hmm. or what we often deem as sufficient evidence. One other thing that I would say before we um, move on is that I also think that by God entering history, time and space, as Jesus did, it also gave us another domain of science. If we consider science in the most general way of being like a body of knowledge, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: suddenly we could study God in history, which is a new way to think about God and to come to belief in him. Now, for me, I am a philosopher by nature. I would much rather sit down and read philosophical arguments and think about them and think about philosophical problems than I would sit down with a book of history and read about the past. Maybe that's a deficiency in me, I don't know. But um, I will say this, like of all of the arguments and demonstrations and reasons I've ever seen given, for belief in Jesus Christ. Nothing has moved me more in conviction about the existence of God and the divinity of Christ than the historical arguments that are made for Christ's resurrection. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that Christ entered history in the way he did through the incarnation, I think was a real gift to us and a new way for God to reveal himself to us in the sense that we can now study God through the historical method.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, um, the incarnation. And something else I thought about as you're talking about um, with regards to like looking into like, history and such is the, is the Holy Spirit um, in terms of like having like in God indwelling in believers where um, not only can we look into the past and see God incarnate in Christ, um, but with the Spirit, we have God kind of guide us through this journey. So, is there any kind of like last considerations that you want to make with regards to like the problem of divine hiddenness that we didn't like get into um, before we get into a couple like specific like objection kind of things here? Um, so, you have any like, last considerations here before we get into that?
1: Well, I just I I think I just want to add this. Um, I just want to emphasize the fact that what I said before about not being able to make certain claims about what we should expect from God. Um, I think yeah. there's limitations on that. There's some things that we can expect from God. Like for example, if if we understand God to be um, perfect and, and part of that perfection is omniscience, then we should expect that God um, is not going to tell lies. And so, you know, that might be an area that a non-believer is going to try to um, come back at us with and say, well, here are some things that God apparently said that aren't true. Um, So those are interesting arguments. But in this case, the reason why I'm not strongly compelled by a lot of the arguments from divine hiddenness out there is they're making a claim, um, and they're ultimately giving an objection from failed expectations, and I think that their expectations um, are just unjust uh, given the transcendence of God and the possibility that God, because of his transcendence. um, And again, from my perspective, as a classical theist, because of his absolute simplicity Mm -hmm. um, and his completely different mode of existence from ours, that we're just not in a place um, to know every possible motive, say, that God might mm-hmm. have for permitting things like non-resistant non-belief. Um, and so I think I think the, the most reasonable position, if you don't want to jump right into belief in God because you have no reasons uh, from your perspective to believe in God, then I think agnostic is probably the most respectable position. But I don't think you can get to atheism from divine hiddenness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank you so much, Matt. Um, a couple kind of like objections here, and if there's any questions we answer um those quickly on our way out here. Um is a lot of times, especially like online, we'll hear that God's just playing like hide and seek. Like, oh wow, look at Matt. Matt has that cool experience, but me over here, I just think God's playing hide and seek I, and I can't I can't find God. He's just hiding from me. Um so what do you think about this kind of like hide and seek argument? Um that's kind of like an informal argument from divine hiddenness.
1: Yeah, well one thing I'd say is it's not really an argument and, and- it is more of just a flippant sort of rhetorical ploy. God, excuse me, God doesn't play hide and seek. I mean, that's just not, it's not a serious way of looking at the problem. I think if somebody is putting it in those terms that God is playing hide and seek, that he's just toying with us, you know, and he, and maybe he enjoys watching somebody suffer because they can't find him when their friend, you know, has found him and, and you know, this, this kind of a, approach. Um, I think one of the things that is necessary for a proper relationship with God is a certain amount of humility and contrition. Now, I'm not saying that those who don't have a relationship with God, and and I'm especially not saying non-resistant non-believers don't have humility and don't have contrition for mistakes they've made in the past. It it may be the case that um, in terms of humility and contrition, Generally speaking, they may have more of it than their Christian friends, but particularly as it applies to how we view the possibility that God exists and if he existed, how we would want to relate to him. I think if you're making a hide and seek argument, your heart's probably not in the right place to see the signs that God is giving you that he exists and and loves you Um, Mm -hmm. because And I think that's just betrayed by that kind of an argument that you're just not, you're not in the sort of place that you ought to be if you wanted to uh, respond to the grace that God is giving you to know him and love him.
0: Yeah, that's great, and I appreciate that, because I think a lot of times we got to separate the rhetoric from like kind of like the argument um, in itself. So the argument here that I want to bring, the last thing before we go to a little bit of Q&A, like an evidential argument from hiddenness where uh, maybe someone will say, like, this logical problem doesn't work, but we can just say that, like, hey, if we take the hypothesis of atheism that God doesn't exist, um, divine hiddenness, which seems to be... Uh, maybe true. It's just, it seems like it fits Mm -hmm. very well with this idea that God doesn't exist because he's hidden, because he's not there. Um, So how would you respond to that kind of like evidential argument um, from hiddenness that I just very briefly sketched out uh, there, Matt?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think an evidential argument is, in most cases, more compelling actually than making a hard and fast logical claim that some fact about the world and some fact about God are inconsistent with each other, incompatible. An evidential argument says, well, they might be compatible. You know, hiddenness might be compatible with God's existence, but it's more probable than not that given non-resistant non-belief, in the case of Schellenberg's way of arguing, God probably doesn't exist. So it's more reasonable to be an atheist than a a theist. so I think that the evidential form of the argument is actually more interesting and more compelling, but if we're gonna make probabilistic arguments, then there has to be a certain amount of relevant prior knowledge that's considered in order to, to make a probabilistic argument. And I think like we have to look at both sides, right? Because some of the questions we can ask going into the evidential argument, well, okay, but is there evidence that God exists Um, and is a good evidence that God exists. And obviously I would say yes. And you would say yes. Um, Is there evidence that divine hiddenness and God's existence are compatible? We can make arguments for that, maybe a defense in the Plantingian terms or some kind of argument from transcendence that leaves us as some, you know, something of an agnostic about why God does the things he does. we can you know look at revelation we can depending on what perspective we're coming at it from there's prior knowledge that we can bring into these probabilistic considerations that also supports the theistic side at the same time so at the end of the day there's a balance of evidence on one side and evidence on the other um the dominican thinker um brian davies makes, you know, it kind of gives us an interesting way to think about this. And, um, Christopher Martin, otherwise known as CFJ Martin, in his book, God and explanations, an awesome book, super expensive, but it's a, it's a great book if you can get your hands on it. Um, they both talk about how we can, you know, take all of this, all of this dialogue about this stuff and kind of boil it down to this. We can just as easily make an argument like this. Premise one, God exists. Premise two, non-resistant non-belief exists. Premise three, therefore, God's existence and non-resistant non-belief are compatible. And then Mm -hmm. the problem is solved. So all you need to do when you're making a deductive argument is show that your premises are true and that the conclusion follows from the premises. And if we can um, prove that God exists as premise one, if we can prove or even assume, let's just say, that non-resistant non-belief exists as premise two, then we can conclude, number three, that God and non-resistant non-belief exist. And what follows from that is that they're compatible. Mm. Okay, and then we can just talk about from more of a pastoral or emotional perspective about the problem of evil and the argument from evil maybe can be set aside at that point. That probably sounds you know, oversimplistic, simpl- over but I think there's actually something there that's that's an interesting way to, to kind of distill things down. That's That might be how we can come at it. So if there's good arguments for God's existence, and from those arguments we can draw some conclusions about His nature um, prior to considering the problem of hiddenness, if from those arguments for God's existence we can draw the conclusion that God is and has to be necessarily all good, all loving, and so on and so forth, then, then we, there has to be reasons, even if we don't know them, mm-hmm. that God, as perfectly loving, is consistent with a world where non-resistant non-belief exists.
0: Yeah, I, I think you did a good job of looking at this evidential argument, because at least like from my perspective, um, it seems like sort sure, of like you could grant, yeah, divine hiddenness would be expanded under atheism, but, like theism. Like, it seems like we have all these reasons why it made the case that there would be this apparent phenomena of denial. Find hiddenness. If that's true, then the argument doesn't work because it just is expected under either side. Um, so I appreciate you kind of breaking that down. Uh, one question that we have on our way out, um, Matt, is from Benjamin Bethel, which will say, um, But since God remained hidden for so long in a person's life that that person will eventually give up on seeking Him, so that person dies and never believed in Christ, how is that overall good? Uh, so I think talking about, um, earlier we were talking about someone who may go through intense struggle but at the end of his life, like the person on the cross finds this joy. Um, but now this guy, Benjamin is talking about someone that doesn't ever find that joy. Um, so what are your thoughts on this question, Matt?
1: Matt? Well, this is such a good question and um, it's not easy to answer, but mm-hmm. um, I think one thing we have to pay attention to are what are the assumptions we're making that are unprovable about the conditions within which people die? So the assumption here is that there's somebody who has sought God as a non-resistant non-believer, has truly desired to be in a relationship with God, and who has never obtained that relationship, and maybe at some point given up, and then just die- and and then just died, never having formed that relationship with God, um, and for that reason, I guess we, what follows from this is, how is that, you know, just if this person then dies and goes to hell? Um, well, I would just say that in God's justice and especially in God's mercy, God is not going to leave somebody hanging in that way. Because the way that the question is framed seems to imply this would be unjust. Well, if it's unjust, then that's incompatible with God's nature. And so that's just not how it's going to happen. And put it this way, if somebody goes to hell, they're going there because that's what they chose for themselves. Um, it's you know, sort of the C.S. Lewis analogy of, um, was it, uh, the door to hell is locked from the inside. So like, yeah, so you, I mean, one way to look at hell is if you end up there, it's cause you chose to go there and decided heaven wasn't what you desired. Um, so again, in this case, it, it seems as though we've seen cases like this where somebody was seeking God for so long and in exasperation, they, they despaired and gave up and they never, found Christ. Well, we don't know how God reveals himself to people at that last moment of their life. And sometimes, you know, kind of like God's appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus, like not everybody saw what Paul saw. Um, There are ways that God sometimes will reveal to, we might be sitting at someone's bedside as they pass away and see no indication that God has revealed himself and made a relationship possible with him or a choice to be in relationship with him at any point. Whereas, it could be that God in some way at that last moment in a way um, that we can't perceive has finally, you know, given that grace in that final moment for that person to choose him. And it may very well be that they finally chose him and then the eternal life that they gain, then, um, you know, we might say because it's infinite, um, it overwhelms any memory they might have of that finite time where they desire a relationship with God but didn't, mm-hmm. didn't find it. Mm. Yeah. That's great. Um,
0: it's this is the book of The Great Divorce is great. Um, kind of yes. like a little piece of understanding hell. So Matt, thank you so much for your time. I've appreciated this conversation, um, and your work and your preparation and all these things, um, talking about divine hiddenness. Is there any kind of like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say that you want to bring up before we start to wrap things up here?
1: I just want to encourage, um, you know, the believers, Um, and those who are leading in the direction of theism who are watching this or listening to this to read Schellenberg's book and the work he's done and the work that others have done on arguments from divine hiddenness and take them seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, these are, we should continue, you know, our dialogues with those who disagree with us um, with mutual respect but also with uh, the ultimate goal being to seek the truth together. Um, And thanks to you, Zach, and the sort of work you're doing, I think like this is the sort of thing that we're seeing more of as we move forward. So um, keep seeking the truth.
0: Yeah, that's what I love to say. Just keep seeking truth and asking questions. And uh, I'm grateful for you, Matt, and everyone else who's been doing a lot of work um, in terms of apologetics and stuff. It seems like just in the few years I've kind of understood the topic, it's just grown so much. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. And thank you, everyone who tuned in today. Um, Benjamin, Vassem, Garland, everyone else. It's been a pleasure. Um, and as always, if you enjoy the show, I encourage you to subscribe on your way out, um, whether you're listening to YouTube or podcast. And then if you enjoy us, you can support the show on patreon.com slash apologetics. Um, you can join there. You can do a yearly pledge or a monthly as little as a dollar a month. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just press the join button. But Matt, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute
1: pleasure to talk with you. Thanks again, Zach. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, God bless.